recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchy and you and Christy. Welcome to episode number 46 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchy, along with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and his firm is online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend and you can follow us on social, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, as well as YouTube and SoundCloud, in fact, and you can get our newsletter at prlawpodcast.com club and you and we're going to talk a little bit about social media later on in the show but how are you doing i'm okay i'm all right what's going on your end you know it's uh it's been a little bit of a difficult week uh in hong kong over the last couple weeks um there's been some stories about how sort of the the mainland or china is really taking control of of hong kong and uh we're bracing for an overhaul to our election system here which is going to make it almost impossible for uh, non-Beijing appointed legislators to win election. And uh, Bloomberg had a story over the weekend saying China's prepared to overhaul the legal system in Hong Kong and move it to a unitary system away from British common law. So it's uh, wow. big changes happening here. Wow, that is absolutely, wow, that's huge. I mean, <laughs> like, I don't even know where to begin with that. That's yeah. Um, well, the yeah. yeah, the changes to the electoral system, those are those I mean, we've been expecting those for a while. Um, Bloomberg had kind of an exclusive on the legal system, so it hasn't been announced or anything like that. But Bloomberg has rock solid sources and their reporting has been quite, quite good. And they've been ahead of this stuff. So I think, uh, yeah, it's, um, you know, you and I've said this to people privately, and I, I may have mentioned this to you. It, it's a a very bizarre experience living in a place that is losing its freedoms. Like that's a weird experience because you think these things are sacrosanct and of course they're going to be there. And of course nobody's going to let that happen, but it's happened. I mean, it's not even, it's beyond happening. It has happened in the past uh, here now. And so, yeah, it's a big wake up call. Well, yeah. I mean, and especially as you literally can stand by, sit by and watch that erosion stage by stage, day by day. I can't imagine what that must be like. You know, it's the first time in my life where I've avoided news articles on a certain subject because I I find it too painful in a way. Like I I can't control it and there's nothing I can do about it. I mean, I think in countries with sort of proper, you know, civil societies and, and democracies, you can get out there and you can campaign or you can, do something about it but in this case there's nothing that can be done and it's almost too depressing to 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 read and to follow you know day by day um so it's just you know trying to trying to sort of unplug from from that but regardless it's it's definitely it's definitely happening and i do want to say too because a lot of people say like what you know what what's wrong with hong kong but this is you know china is a, a different country now um i think this has more to do with china than hong kong um the country is very, very emboldened, I think, especially from the coronavirus and how well they've handled it there that, um, yeah, they're feeling very, very, very confident. Well, 
uh, it, it, it makes, it makes me sad too. I mean, <laughs> as you know, I've spent a lot of time in Hong Kong. I love the city. It's such a vibrant city. It's so rich and steeped in interesting history and culture and food. Um, you know, to lose it, at least the, the, the Hong Kong that, that I know and love, uh, it, it, that, that really, that one cuts deep, you know? Yeah, it, it, um, it does. And, you know, people always ask me like, well, what, you know, what's going to, what's going to happen? And, uh, you know, the city is obviously always going to be here. I mean, it's a big financial market still. Um, I think there's always going to be lots of money here. You know, it's always going to, to function, but it's just going to be a lot different. You know, it's going to be more like mainland China where, yeah, of course you can be successful and, and do well and live well. Um, but there's going to be certain things that you just don't touch and you don't talk about. And, um, yeah, that's going to be, a, a new experience for us. I think continue the debate with us on social media, join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR law podcast, all one word P R L A W podcast. Send us your questions now by email to ask us at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word. Ask us at prlawpodcast.com or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. Okay, Ewan, what have you got cooking in the uh, legal sector? <laughs> well, I'm, Cam, I know uh, two episodes ago, episode 44, we talked about the job interview because, you know, there's a lot of hiring going on right now, which, hey, is good. That's sort of a sign that we're getting back or or at least moving in the direction of some semblance of normal. And, you know, we talked about how to navigate the interview as an employer mm-hmm. and an employee. Well, you know, this week I sort of wanted to go on to the next stage of that process, which is the employment agreement. Right. And the negotiation of the employment agreement. Which most people hate to do <laughs> or feel uncomfortable doing. Well, yeah. And, and, and that's kind of it, Cam, because, you know, it never ceases to amaze me how few employees actually take the time to review and negotiate their terms of employment. And I mean, like, let, let's think about that for a second. You know, when you make other sort of huge purchases, if you're buying a house or, you know, buying a car, I mean, there's almost always a, a negotiation process involved, right? In terms of the price and what's included, what's not included. And yet, for whatever reason, when people are presented with a new employment agreement for a job, I mean, you know, like the very thing that enables you to go out and buy that house and that and that car in the first place, so many people are just saying, nah, I'm good. Where do I sign? You know, I hear that comparison, but I do think they're a bit different. Even me. I mean, I don't usually negotiate too much on an employment agreement. And so I assume that people do that mainly because a, you know, they're not confident in, in their views or in their own review of the document. And then two, that if something does happen that they're uncomfortable with, they can open up a line of communication with their boss or with HR to, to try and resolve it. Um, whereas when you buy that car or you buy that fridge, you take it home and that's pretty much it. I mean, you can try contacting the manufacturer, but it's going to be difficult after you've already taken it home. And you're going into the office day after day after day and you can talk to people about any problems that you're having. I know that's not sufficient. I fully get your point, but I'm just trying to think about why people might think of it that way. Yeah, fair enough. And I mean, and and also to your point, uh, you know, your ability to sort of negotiate the terms of your employment agreement, it's going to fluctuate greatly 
um, depending on the type of position and the role, right? I mean, mm-hmm. obviously, if you're in a in a more senior role and it's higher paying and there are fewer and, and far sort of positions that are comparable, then, you know, your likelihood of having some some leverage to negotiate is going to increase. And obviously, if it's if it's a, a lower level position that's more readily available, then your ability to negotiate is going to decrease. But it doesn't it doesn't change the fact, regardless of what the position is, you should know what you're signing. Yes. You should know what you're getting into. And really the big thing here, Cam, is it's not so much for when you're signing the agreement. It's for when the the agreement is severed in some way. Either, you know, your employer is terminating you or laying you off or, or you know, ex- exercising or executing any of the provisions under the employment agreement that they're entitled to exercise. And all of a sudden you're left scratching your head saying, well, wait, wait a minute, they can do that? How, how, do, how can they do that? How did this happen? Right. Like, well, it happened because you signed an agreement that said that it could happen. Um, and that's tough and news to hear for a lot of people. Well, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, it, it just goes back to that fundamental principle of sit down with somebody and have them review your agreement, whether it means that you're going to subsequently try and, and push for more money or push for a bigger bonus or whatever the issue is. At least you have a fundamental knowledge of what it is that you're signing and things that you can look out for if and when sort of the relationship goes south. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what can they look out for? I guess the other thing too, Ewan, is is having somebody review it costs money, right? So, I mean, that's yeah. another block, I guess, for some people. But you're right. This is really important. Like this is your employment, your your livelihood, really. I mean, there's almost nothing more important than this document in a way. Um, so what should they look out for? Well, yeah. I mean, you're going to be, you're going to go to work every day. Absolutely. If you think about the amount of hours in a given week, you're going to spend doing this thing. Um, it almost seems, it, it almost seems fundamental that you would have somebody look at it for sure. Okay. So w- things to look at. I mean, there's obviously the basic stuff, right? Your salary, your bonus, your benefits, that kind of stuff. Is it negotiable? Is there any further movement? You know, if we're if we're talking about bonuses, for example, is there a formula? Is it discretionary? If it's discretionary, on what basis is it discretionary? Um, is there any further documentation that the employer can provide you with to give you some indication or ballpark figure as to what you could expect your bonus to be in a given year if you're entitled to one? Um, in terms of your benefits. Yeah, you get benefits, but what does that mean? What's included in the package? Ask, ask for a copy of the package so you can get some sense as to, you know, am I getting 80% of my dental covered? Am I getting 100%? Can I, you know, can I get braces for my child if I need to get braces for my child? I mean, all of these things, Cam, are part and parcel with a benefits package. And, and the majority of people don't ask. They don't even think to ask. So, right. um, you know, this is fundamental stuff ask your employer and there's nothing wrong with doing that and make sure you know what it is that you're getting yourself into. So when you say ask the employer, I assume you mean to talk to HR or is it to your hiring manager? Because I think sometimes people are confused about that. Well, I mean, it it generally depends on how your interview process has transpired. I mean, often you'll have a manager that you'll meet with 
who will say, if you have any questions, please let me know. And you, you know, you're sort of instructed to direct them at that individual. Oftentimes you're absolutely right. It will be saying, you know, if you have any questions about the benefits or the bonus or what have you contact our HOS as has transpired. I mean, often you'll have a manager that you'll meet with who will say, if you have any questions, please let me know. And you, you know, you're sort of instructed to direct them at that individual. Oftentimes you're absolutely right. It will be saying, you know, if you have any questions about the benefits or the bonus or what have you contact our HR and they can provide you with that information. So, I mean, it really sort of, it, it, it depends. The important thing is that you ask, Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you ask, um, regardless of, of what, what it is or who you speak to. Right. And then I guess sort of raise all these because I think this is a great subject and it's something people all deal with for the most part. I think there is some concern that you would be putting the hiring manager off or maybe being difficult or maybe there's other candidates who are not asking these questions who might be more agreeable for the role. Like those kinds of things all enter into people's heads, I think. And but your advice is really don't 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 pay attention to that because you need to be sure about the contract before you sign. Well, absolutely. Look, and if an employer has already extended an offer of employment, you know that they want you and they're not going to throw away that potential relationship because you've asked to look at the benefit plan. I mean, this is this is a very real and practical aspect of the employment relationship. And you need to make an informed decision as a prospective employee. Same thing with the bonus. Right. And people say, oh, I get a bonus. I've never had a bonus before. Well, great. Congratulations. Good for you. That doesn't mean that you aren't entitled to understand the parameters of how that bonus is calculated or if that bonus will be paid upon termination or under what circumstances it will be paid Mm -hmm. upon termination. Um, You know, these are all really critically important questions to address. You know, you and I, um, I'm going to digress a little bit here for a second. Um, what you're describing is critical for people to understand and to think through. And I like these kinds of things need to be taught, I feel like, to younger people in school. Because, I mean, I went through the financial market here in Hong Kong working at the exchange. And I remember thinking through that entire nine years at that company that, you know, I never learned any of this in the public school system in Canada. And I don't think Canada is alone in this, really. But there's certain things that really come up over and over again for adults that are critical to their long term success and financial independence. And the, it's these subjects. It's what you're talking about, how to receive a contract and review it and ask questions and how to, uh, you know, go through that process to protect yourself, how to invest in stocks, how to, what is an ETF, how, you know, all of these things. And um, it's, it's really important. Like these things are really, really important. Well, yeah. And not only that, I'm sure there are listening. Well, yeah. Hey, if I'm making crazy money in my senior role, of course, I'm going to have a lawyer look at it. I'm going to try and negotiate um, the terms of the employment relationship. But you'd be surprised how many people, even in those roles, that don't do it. Or they think, no, no, I've got this. I understand what I'm signing. I, I get it. It's all. It, it's okay. It's all good. And then when I end up meeting with that individual after they've been let go... And I bring some of the, the sort of the fundamental provisions of their employment agreement to their attention, uh, notably the termination clause, which we'll, we'll go on to next. You know, they're sort of sitting there tearing their hair out and saying, well, what do you mean? 
what do you mean the employer only has to pay me X or the employer doesn't have to pay me Y? Are you kidding me? Like, well, yeah, that's see, see this line right here. <laughs> that's yeah. what it says. And then see the line at the end of the agreement where it says that, you know, you weren't under any duress or undue pressure in executing this agreement that you were provided the opportunity to seek independent legal counsel. Um, mm-hmm. Well, you know, there, there you go. So that's, that's your situation. And that's why you're now paying me um, to deal with something. So when you talk about it from a cost benefit analysis, yeah, sure. You're going to have to pay a lawyer uh, to spend an hour with you to go through your agreement, but you're going to spend a lot more on the back end if you don't do your due diligence up front. Yeah, that's right. And I do think at the beginning, when you're offered a contract or an agreement, uh, that that's at a positive time, right? Like that's when they're hiring you and they're upbeat and you feel upbeat. So you don't, I mean, oftentimes you don't think about going through it with a fine tooth comb because you think, well, they want me there. So they're me well, and they're not going to do something like that. But I mean, as you're saying, those clauses are in there to protect the employer in the event things go wrong or things take a turn. Uh, and then the employee is kind of hung out to dry sometimes. But Well, but, yeah. Yep. And, the, you know, the sort of the analogy I always give, and I, it's, I've even said this on this show before, Cam, it's like a marriage. Nobody gets married with the expectation mm. of getting divorced. But the reality is, is that there's a lot of divorced couples out there. Mm-hmm. So it would behoove anyone and everyone um, to take this topic seriously. And yeah, to sit down and pay the hour to have somebody walk you through your agreement so you know what it is you're getting into. Right. That's a good comparison, Ewan. <laughs> but carry on. <laughs> The big sort of key provision I wanted to make sure we discuss today is the one thing that every employment lawyer immediately goes to when they're reviewing an employment agreement, and that's the termination clause, right? We, I mean, it almost seems it's the most lawyerly thing you could possibly think of, right? I'm looking <laughs> at an agreement, and the first thing I want to look at is what do we do when the, the negative, agreement yeah. goes bad, right? <laughs> when, it's, when it's falling apart, what mm-hmm. happens? That's the first thing we want to look at. Um, but, it, but it's true. And, you know, the termination clause, it governs so much. It's so important. And again, it's one of those things where most employees assume, well, it is, it, it's drafted the way that it's drafted. There's nothing I can do about it. I'm signing on the dotted line and I'm sending it back. Well, no, not necessarily. And often there is a lot of room to negotiate in terms of the termination clause. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because your termination clause ultimately sets out what your entitlements are if the employer severs that employment relationship. And more often than not, employers being clever and generally speaking, having lawyers review their agreements and draft them. Now, not all the time. And if you're lucky enough to have one of those employers as an employee, then you might end up okay on the back end, but you can't rely on that. But if the employer has done their due diligence and has had legal counsel structure a good termination clause, you're most likely coming out with the bare minimum entitlements that the law will permit. That's it. And sometimes that can be very, very, very little, if, if anything at all. So, you know, one of the things you want to look at with a lawyer, if they're going over your employment agreement is, can we negotiate this? You know, and let me give you a specific example. Let's say, Kim, you've been with a company for 10 years. You're in a serious, you know, rather senior position and you leave that very secure employment to go elsewhere. 
Mm-hmm. You know, it looks like a great opportunity. You take this new job and then, you know, less than a year into the relationship, you're, you're let go. Well, you would want some security under those circumstances to make sure that if in fact the relationship is terminated, you've got a fail safe of some kind. So maybe you want to try and craft some language that says in the event of the termination of my employment, I will be entitled to a minimum of three months pay or two months pay or one month's pay, something like that, plus an additional, you know, two weeks per completed year of service. Some very, very specific and targeted language to ensure that if things do sour early on in the relationship, you know that you're walking out with no less than three months pay in your back pocket to sort of float you until you can find another job. Mm -hmm. And I, I know this is a difficult question because it pertains to jurisdiction. There's a lot of confusion about this. Like a lot of people say, well, I'm entitled to one per year, one week per year. And I recognize that this is different at every company. and It depends on what you've signed. So it can vary. But is there a baseline, like even in in Canada or Ontario, or sort of a a level where you start from when you're doing these negotiations at the beginning of this process when you're signing that employment agreement? Yeah. I mean, again, that is a very difficult question to answer because it is going to depend entirely Mm. on your specific jurisdiction. Yes. In Ontario, absolutely. You know, you've got your statutory termination entitlements. You have your severance entitlements. If you you spend at least five years with a company and they have a a particular payroll threshold or meet a particular payroll threshold. And then you have what we call the common law notice, which is sort of looking at similarly situated employees to you in terms of your age, your years of service, your salary, your title and position, your character of employment. And, you know, we're looking at these and a whole slew of other sort of factors, Cam, to try and reach a determination of how long is it going to take you to find comparable employment? So there are, you know, I I often meet with people and they say, well, yeah, but I'm entitled to a a month per year service. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, that, that's like the, that's the norm. It's like, no, that, no, (laughs) there is no, there's no rule anywhere that says that's what you are entitled to is a month per year. Um, that's not how it goes. And rarely is that the case in, in most jurisdictions. Can you say, um, well, yeah, yeah, I'm just entitled to this. I mean, generally it's either spelled out in the contract or it's spelled out in your relevant employment standards legislation, wherever you happen to live. Um, there are no, there, there are no sort of fixed norms from, from sort of one country to the next in these things. You need to look into it. Show your support to the PRN Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So you and uh, next weekend, I have to uh, give a second university lecture, if you could believe that. I, I, I do these presentations. I did one about 18 months ago or maybe almost two years ago now. But then, you know, we hit with protests and things which knocked out um, a second appearance. But I have one coming up this weekend, this coming weekend. And um, as a result of that, I dove into some statistics, into some information that I wanted to share with students about communications and 
and digital communications and content and things like that. And in that process, I really dug up some interesting statistics. Um, and I think on this show, and we probably should do this once or twice a year, is just take a look at the state of the profession in terms of digital, in terms of how communications teams are operating, the networks that they're using, social media, new methods, trends that are on the rise, that kind of thing. So this is the first the first annual state of the online networks for PR pros. How does that sound? Maybe we got to change dun, the dun, name, dun. Of, name of the name. Do we have some music for this? <laughs> I feel like we, we should have some music. I feel like we should have a jingle. Yeah. So <laughs> I'll work on that talk. So anyway, the first thing I want to bring up was some statistics from 2020. And, um, and this is, this really pertains to social media in particular here. And I think there's some surprising findings. And, um, I mean, first off, we're going to talk about the fortune 500 companies here. So the 500 largest companies, um, in, in the, in the U S 499 of those 500 companies, uh, use social media. So just one does not. <laughs> Well, what's, Which wait, is, wait, 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 you can't just say that. I, what's the one company that you know doesn't? Do you I, have, know? I don't even know. I'm going to have to look that up. But I, I think okay, it might have okay. been mentioned, I, that, but I can't remember. That's actually more fascinating than the fact that yeah. there's 499 that do. Why, why is the one not doing it? Yeah, that is that is interesting. But of those, Ewan, so of these 499 companies, 89% use Twitter, which is the number one network, actually. However down 7% in usage from 2019 to 2020. Um, really? Yes. And when we look at Facebook, so 86% of these companies use Facebook and it's down 10% from 2019, 65% use Instagram and that's down 9% from 2019 and 78% use YouTube and that's down 13%. So, and this accords a little bit with what I was noticing, which is there isn't a de-emphasis on these social networks. I don't think it's a uniform reason. I think there's differences for each of these, but there has definitely been a decline in interest in these sort of four, four big ones. Huh. That is, I mean, that's really interesting. You've got across all platforms, a clear trend downward trend so i mean what are they turning to as an alternative well, i mean I, I know you're probably going to get there yes. i don't want to jump you too far ahead but that's obviously the, the the next logical question right yes and they are turning somewhere else so i i'm, I'm going to get into that i mean on these i, I want to talk about maybe the reasons for some of these so the first thing to note is these are 2020 numbers and 2020 was a pandemic from you know, March through the end of the year. And that may have impacted some of this, but it might not necessarily impact it on the downside. I mean, a lot of companies increased their usage of digital tools as a result of the pandemic rather than decreased uh, the emphasis on those tools. On Twitter, I mean, well, let's start with Facebook, actually. I mean, it's had a really tough couple of years, actually. It's not a well-liked company. We've discussed it on this show many times. There's questions about how they moderate content. I do think there's some frustration with Facebook, um, not for those reasons, but because Facebook has basically made it necessary to pay if you want to access your your fans on your Facebook page, that there's almost zero organic reach now. Um, and so that's, that's, a, that's a factor. It's harder and harder to get something big on Facebook and to get your, your, your fans to see it. Um, the, the surprising one to me, you went on this list was Instagram because Instagram is incredibly popular 
I mean, it is a, it's still a red hot social network, but I think in the case of, of Instagram, I don't know why the 9% decline that could be pandemic related because it's a, it's a photo sharing site, right? If everyone's at home and you've got no one in the <laughs> office and no one, no one in the studios or whatever it might be, whatever your business is, and there might not be as much to, to share there. And actually that, that applies to a lot of businesses. You know, even when I was at the stock exchange here, we thought, well, you know, everyone's on Instagram, especially in Hong Kong. Um, you know, let, let's do that. But then we thought like, we're, we're a stock exchange. What, what, what do we, are we going to show people sitting in meetings or, you know, there wasn't much, right. yeah. much interesting content to share. And when you, when you go on these networks, you want to, you know, create content almost daily. So, you know, you have to think ahead to that sort of thing. So that's just my own sort of guessing on, on Instagram, but, but all four of these are, are, are down for sure. So you said, where are they going? And so the first one here does also align with my expectations. 99% of these fortune 500 companies um, use LinkedIn. And that is, it makes it the number one social platform for the fortune 500 for seven straight years. And wow. it's consistent from 2019. It was 99% in 2019, 99% in 2020. Very popular. Hmm. Interesting. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I mean, I know this is obviously anecdotal, but I certainly have seen my LinkedIn usage increase greatly. And you know what I think part of it is, is that I feel as though, you know, I'd post something work related on Twitter and it might get, you know, hey, one person likes it and it's retweeted a couple of times. The sort of the connection, particularly with people in my profession um, through LinkedIn, that interaction and that connection, it, it seemed there seems to be so much more interaction. And again, I understand this is anecdotal and maybe that's not consistent with what other people's experience or other businesses experiences have, have been, but for whatever reason, the, the target market seems to be reached far easier on LinkedIn than on some of the other social media platforms. Yeah. And I, I've actually had given this quite a bit of thought, in fact, because, you know, when I was at the exchange, we launched our LinkedIn page while I was there. This is many years ago. You know, now at, at Tencent, I mean, our LinkedIn page adds five, 6,000 new fans per week. I mean, it's, we have almost, we should hit a million fans this year, actually. And that's a lot. And um, I think you're right, Ewan. I mean, LinkedIn is clearly a sort of a career or, or professional kind of social network where, you know, the networking and schmoozing is kind of expected. It's part of it's part of that culture on LinkedIn. It's okay to talk about your work project and kind of, kind of praise yourself or talk about your, your company's corporate social responsibility or whatever it might be. Whereas you wouldn't really mention that on Facebook, probably. I think the other factor is there's less trolling, less news, less QAnon kind of stuff on LinkedIn. I mean, it really is, it's geared towards the professional set or the white collar worker. And it, you know, your experience, you and while anecdotal for you, I think is, is consistent with a lot of people's experience, including my own on LinkedIn. When you, when you post something, especially if it's related to your company or your industry, you could get a lot of comments or a lot of engagement on that post um, because it is something that several people share, right? If they're in your industry, they can relate to what you're saying. They understand it. They understand if it's a big deal or not, what you're saying, um, those sorts of things. So it does make LinkedIn stand out a lot from the others in my view. So I'm not surprised that almost everyone uses it. 
Right. I, I, I guess my only real my only real gripe with LinkedIn, and again, this is also very, very personal and, and anecdotal, Cam, is I wish some people maybe would sit down with someone like you, a, a PR, a communications person to sort of craft some some more unique language. I feel like there's a particular lexicon within the LinkedIn world. <laughs> I don't know if you've if you've noticed this and the big one that drives me absolutely bonkers is someone who's given a presentation or had a paper published and it always starts the same way. I'm very honored to <laughs> blah, 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 or so humbled to blah, 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 blah. And clearly this is the language that the LinkedIn world has cultivated as to, well, this is how you frame some sort of self-aggrandizing um, post. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not suggesting that people shouldn't do that. I mean, Hey, great. You know, you should be recognized for your accomplishments and, um, some of this stuff is a big deal. It's just the particular language that's used to, de- to describe yeah. it. That kind of, I'm at the point now where it drives me bonkers so much so that I just gloss over it when I see it in my feed. No, I'm, I'm the same way, actually. I mean, I, I, I really respond badly to just business jargon in general. Like I never want to hear inflection point ever again. I mean, it's just, it is such a crutch for people. And and you're right. I mean, it's interesting because the people actually are kind of bragging about some kind of accomplishment and then saying, I'm humbled to brag about this. <laughs> so it's not very consistent, but I, I hear you, Yuan. And that stuff does bother me. There's a lot of terms like that that float around on LinkedIn. And I can see how if you're not a white collar professional, or I mean, even if you are, you may be turned off by a lot of this kind of thing because it really is self-promotional. I mean, all the social networks are self-promotional to a degree, right? But this one, I feel like, and the Instagram maybe to some degree are just really nakedly self-promotional. Well, yeah, that, that, that's very much the point of the exercise. Exactly. I am on here to self-promote. I'm not here for anything else. And I think that's why it's popular, right? I mean, you might not feel okay saying some of that stuff. I'm humbled to have given a speech at blah, blah, blah on Facebook. You know, your high school friends might mock you for that. Uh, but on LinkedIn, for sure. I mean, that's expected. No one's going to make fun of you. People are going to probably say something positive to you. So it's just a different different context altogether. Yeah, except, and, and look, I don't want to go down too much of a rabbit hole here and hijack what you were planning to talk about. But this to me is also somewhat reminiscent, Cam, of you know, a trend that started to develop on Facebook. And of course, there's been a lot of writing about this, about how it's resulted in people just getting horrifically depressed and, you know, um, suffering from crippling anxiety going through their Facebook feed because they're seeing all of these posts of these individuals living this very illusionary sort of, of existence of this is, you know, the very best version of myself that I'm putting out into the public eye. And, you know, you could, you could sort of level a similar criticism at LinkedIn because, of course, people are only ever talking about all of the wonderful accomplishments that they have in their professional career, right? They're not talking about how, you know, hey, I lost this client or, hey, I missed out on this bid or, hey, this didn't happen. All the very realistic yep. and practical day-to-day stuff that happens in everybody's professional lives So when you're kind of combing through your feed, I can understand how some people might think, 
am I just failing miserably? Because apparently everybody is just killing it left, right, and center. You're right. That is a problem across all the social networks. But I think, again, LinkedIn is kind of unique in that way where it really is your career. I mean, you're talking about your career. And, and I mean, I notice like people really do post if they're invited to speak at an event or sit on a panel or you know, take part in some sort of uh, industry group, you know, those kinds of things where it really does look like, wow, this person is really kind of a thought leader. (laughs) There's another term that's annoying, you know, in, in their area. So, I mean, people do have to put all of this in context when they see it. Right. And sit back and go like that. Nobody's life is all sunshine and butterflies. Right. So, yeah. So where are they going? So LinkedIn is, is one obviously that that's big and the other, and I'm a huge proponent of this one, you and corporate blogs, 77% 77% use corporate blogs and that's up three times from 2015. And I like, this is one thing where I really feel strongly about because I've seen the impact of it. I think I've mentioned on this podcast that, that, you know, I helped launch the blog for the chief executive at the Hong Kong stock exchange. And I mean, it became really successful over time. And um, to this day, it might be quoted, you know, anytime. I mean, that, that chief executive left uh, several months ago but you know up until then it was still being quoted you know anytime he would be in the in the news or anytime something would happen and he wrote something on the blog that was related to it and you know the we we just saw so much more impact writing something up from the chief executive than putting out a press release and we used it a lot over my years at the exchange we put out close to 70 blogs and they were really, really important. Um, you know, one one factor, Ewan, is, you know, for a long time, the Hong Kong financial market, we've not allowed dual class shares here. Um, so it's always, if you, if you own a share in a company, you get one vote. Um, it's a very democratic way of electing a board for a company. But the U.S. and other markets allow dual class shares, where maybe one share is worth 10 votes, for instance. So they're not equal. And, I mean, this has been a staple of the Hong Kong market for literally decades And, um, you know, it was a blog post of his that finally began people to think about maybe we should change this. Maybe there's reason to change it. And I remember doing that first blog post, really being careful about like this is a, you know, very, very sensitive subject and most people are against it. And so how do we present this argument uh, in a way that's going to make it make a difference? And over the course of a couple of years, you know, we, we have dual class shares now in Hong Kong and his, his blog was really a key catalyst towards that because it was so high profile. It gave him the space to write out his arguments, uh, and to present it the way he wanted to present it, not the way the you know, media might do it or, you know, sort of restrictions via a press release. It's an effective way to get the message out. And we are seeing other companies move in this direction. There's even a blurring a little bit between corporate blog and press release, And this is definitely a trend that's here to stay. And I think, you know, companies are moving away from the traditional press release. How much does design principles play into that, Cam? I'm thinking, you know, if it's your corporate blog, then you've literally worked with, you know, a web developer, a designer in crafting that blog page to look exactly the way that you want it in terms of color schemes, in terms of font Um, whereas, you know, if you're sort of posting to a social media platform, say a a Facebook or LinkedIn, what have you, you're effectively subject to work, work within the parameters of what they've established. You don't have that flexibility. Do you think that, you know, crafting the design 
aspect yourself almost lends a greater sense of credibility to the message? I do, provided it's designed well. I I do think so. But I think the main issue is Facebook is beyond any one company's control. And Facebook can change its algorithm, and it does change its algorithm. Facebook could decide tomorrow that it doesn't want to use you know, corporate pages anymore and shut them all down. You're really at Facebook's whim on these things. And um, by posting it on your own website, on your own domain, you control it. You control how long it's up there for and, you know, when and whether to take it down and what it looks like, you know, as you say, these are all really important things. And then the other part, Ewan, which a lot of people don't seem to talk about is um, search engine optimization, SEO. So if you've got something on your own website and you're writing about subjects related to your area of expertise and your business, that can turn up in search results when people are looking for that you know, profession or that kind of company or that business. Um, and so it's a great way to bring people into your website where you can then sort of introduce yourself a bit more once they arrive there. So that's a, another big benefit. Yeah, that makes a great deal of sense. So I, I, I do recommend it for, for those reasons. I think a corporate blogs are really a, a great way to go. So then what else? Well, there's two other ones that are really gaining in, in popularity. They're not social networks, though. One, podcasting. So here we are. And, you know, Back in uh, 2018, which is when I have the most recent numbers, there were 850,000 podcasts out there with 30 million episodes, which is a lot. I mean, this is growing quickly. Um, And in 2019, more than half of all U.S. consumers above the age of 12 said they listened to podcasts, and that's up 44% from the year before. So this is growing quickly as well. Companies are turning to podcasts to talk about uh, their businesses or their area uh, and have guests on. And uh, to me, the interesting stat here, Ewan, is why people tune in. And this is, to me, where the opportunity is. So a survey was done in 2019 uh, about sort of why podcast listeners listen to podcasts. And 75% say to learn new things. And I think that is really, really promising because it's a bit different to how they consume other media like television shows or music. There is a genuine yearning to learn something via a podcast. And that's where companies can come in and uh, and help sort of educate people who are looking for that information. That's great. I mean, you know, we really, it sort of feels like the way they talked about the golden age of television. You know, I know the Sopranos was sort of the first show that we, we heard that, that, um, that phrase used, it sort of ushered in this golden age of, of television. And it, it sort of feels as though we're kind of on the precipice of something similar, um, with regard to, to information by podcasts, right. That it still is sort of this, this thing that has all of this momentum to it. And, and you're right. It's, it's every time you read an article about it, it's growing in, in volume exponentially in terms of number of shows and different subject areas. And I think there's something just so encouraging about that. I don't know what the, what the end game is. I mean, if it just, if it just, if we get to a place where it's just more noise, um, out there that, that people are sort of distracted by, but you know, there, there seems to be something really kind of, I don't know, positive about that. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree totally. I mean, I'm an old radio guy, so 
I mean, I, I, I've always been this way. I love listening to podcasts and it is often for these reasons. Like I do, aside from, you know, certain shows from big broadcasters or big podcast networks, I do listen to some smaller ones on, you know, things like productivity or, or those kinds of things. So there is definitely a lot of room to learn via podcasts. Um, the second one, you and um, just to wrap this up, and I'm really, really big into this right now, actually, which is live streaming. Um, the technology for conducting a live video event over the internet has jumped to such a high degree over the last couple of years. And it's really quite amazing what's going on. So from April 2019 to April 2020, the live streaming sector grew by 99%. It is exploding right now. Um, and a lot of that is via Twitch. So Twitch is the video game streaming uh, platform that was purchased by Amazon. And, you know, last year, so in 2020, viewers watched 1.7 billion hours on Twitch, which is a year-on-year -year growth of 101%. So it's remarkable what's happening. YouTube also grew by 65%. Facebook's live stream grew by 238%, uh, and they placed third of these three. And so, you know, I, I've looked into this a lot because I think we mentioned on the podcast earlier that we do want to sort of introduce a, a video side to this podcast as well. Um, but the ability, you know, one of my last projects before leaving the exchange was to set up a live stream of our listing ceremonies there because, you know, traditionally if there was a big listing, we would you'd call a, a local you know vendor to come out and set up lights and, you know, microphones and cameras. And it costs a lot of money to do that. And it wasn't live and it was just a videotape that we'd edit and publish later. And it was a, it was a long drawn out process. Um, but the technology has come to such a, such a point where, you know, when I left there, we were able to just install a camera in the ceiling and hook it up to the boards. And I could sit upstairs in my office and using an iPad, press a button and it would start recording. The camera would come down and start recording and we'd stream it live on the internet. And then you press the button on your iPad and it would stop and you're done. I didn't even have to go down there. And, um, you know, this is where we're at. There's tools out there that enable these live streams. So doing events like um, uh, financial results calls, earnings calls is a big one. A lot of these are moving online. And they used to be, I mean, in the U.S. in particular, they were phone calls. You call a conference call number kind of thing. But now you can go to a website. You can set up a camera. You can live stream it. You can have your executives answer questions. You can queue up the calls or queue up the, uh, the questions. And... It costs almost nothing. It is very, very reasonable to do this now. And um, I, I think, you know, some companies have embraced this. I still think it's really new. A lot of companies don't know where to start. We're at that stage right now where there's a bit of confusion and people don't realize how easy it's become. So they're not doing it. But this is going to absolutely explode for companies um, in the coming years. There's no question about that. Um, it's going to be big. So that's it. What do you think, Ewan? Live streaming. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting for some camera to descend from my ceiling camera for you to advise me that, uh, you know, you're recording remotely from your iPad. <laughs> <laughs> that would be creepy if that was the case. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. What have you got, Ewan? So I read a great article, Kim, in uh, in Harper's. It was the the cover story of uh, the March edition by Martin Scorsese, 
writing hmm. about Federico Fellini and the lost magic of cinema. And I, you know, full disclosure, I don't know Fellini's filmography. I, I mean, I know of, of him and I certainly know of some of his films because I've, I've read about them over the years. I've never actually sat and watched any of them. Um, this was a really, really interesting long form article where Martin Scorsese basically goes through all of his films one by one and explains why this stuff was important at the time, why it's still important now and why, if you've got some time, you should sit down and, and watch one or two of Fellini's movies. Wow. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, I'm going, uh, a little bit the other way on this because it's dated and we actually talked about this when it came out, but I didn't see it until last week. And that's the last dance <laughs> on Netflix. Oh, and amazing. Yeah. I remember it was on Netflix Canada, but in the U S it was on ESPN. And so it wasn't available on the U S version of Netflix um, until recently, which is the one that we have here. And so once I saw it, I had not seen it yet. And we watched all 10 episodes over the course of the last week. And um, it was absolutely excellent. I thought it was really well done. Um, and I think I remember hearing at the time that it came out last year, which is really almost a year ago now, that it was opening up a whole new uh, sort of area for for sports documentaries, for multi-part sports documentaries. And um, I definitely see the potential. This was this was special, just like those teams, you know, were special in the in the 90s. And um, I definitely recommend it. It's something it's a great thing to take a look at. Completely agree. And I love the cliffhanger element of it. I mean, you're watching a sports documentary, right? I mean, you could just go and yeah. look it up and find out who won this game or who won this series. But the way that every episode ended like a cliffhanger, it was just I've got to I've got to get on to the next one. I've got to get on to the next one. I agree. It was riveting. It was really compelling and really moving at times. It was an incredible documentary. Very series. well done. Um, okay, Ewan, I'm about to have a work meeting in a couple of minutes. Anything else you want to add on this uh, on this episode? Well, no, we should probably get going. We let's, should. Let's hustle up on so, out of here. Yeah, thank you for joining us again, uh, everyone. Episode 46 is in the books. Uh, so don't miss a show in the future. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or on YouTube or SoundCloud. Uh, and of course, social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newsletter at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. I'm off to a meeting. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support. 